Good morning, everyone. And I don't think it's too late in the month of January to say Happy New Year. In fact, New Year's Day, two weeks ago, was the 250th anniversary of John Newton's song, Amazing Grace. Newton was a slave trader who became soundly converted and an activist for the abolition of slavery. When he wrote Amazing Grace, he was the senior minister of the Church of St. Peter and St. Paul in Olney, Buckinghamshire, in England. In a recent article, Marilyn Rose, or Marilyn Rouse, comments, it's not often that a pop song, it's not often that a pop song in the charts can claim to have been around 250 years. John Newton's Amazing Grace featured in hit parades all over the world in the 1960s and 70s. And I personally would add, it's still known and sung by millions, especially in the US. On New Year's Day in 1773, John Newton introduced his sermon saying, the Lord bestows many blessings upon his people but unless he likewise gives them a thankful heart, they lose much of the comfort they might have in them. He wanted everyone to have a thankful heart for all the Lord has done and continues to do for his people. Come with me to the parable we've just read from Luke chapter 16, and I know you've got a Bible about you, either in page form or in data form. Let me identify three themes. First, a corrupt manager. Second, a merciful owner. Third, a sting in the tail. The parable takes us into the world of Wall Street, of property and business. It's the story of a rich man who has his affairs looked after by a property manager who enjoyed a great deal of delegated power. He could enter into financial negotiations, do deals, and sign contracts. However, he could also mismanage funds, and this seems to have been the case. For at short notice, his master issued him with a dismissal notice. Look at verse 1. Charges were brought to the owner that his manager was squandering his property. The manager kept quiet because he wasn't sure of the specific charges that were actually being brought against him. But his silence condemned him. He was fired. Significantly, he was not immediately taken to court or sent to prison. He had time to plan for the future but he needed to act quickly. Knowing that he didn't have the physical stamina or the heart to take a job as a labourer and not wanting to beg, he decided he needed friends who would look after him. With this opening scene, Jesus, the master storyteller, would have drawn his audience into the parable. One by one, the manager called in those who owed the money, owed money to the owner. 
Bring all your contracts, he told each debtor. The first debtor owed the equivalent of 900 gallons of oil. We'll halve that, the manager said. The second owed the equivalent of two and a half tonnes of wheat. Without ado, the manager reduced that account too. In today's money, each reduction was in the order of, let's say, $20,000. Commentators have spilt a great deal of ink discussing what the parable means. Let me make a number of observations. The actions of the manager in summoning the debtors and reducing their accounts is actually quite conceivable. In a bad season, it wouldn't be unreasonable for an owner to reduce the rent and to do it in advance of the payment. The unexpected feature here is this, the secrecy and the speed with which the adjustments are made. Furthermore, there's an all-important underlying theme. The manager was acting on his, possession, on his perception of the character of the owner. On the one hand, he saw the owner as upright and just, someone who required accountability. On the other hand, because the owner had not immediately taken him to court, the manager realised the owner could temper justice with mercy. And here's the key. The manager risked everything on his perception of the owner's mercy. The property owner had two options. He could call in the debtors and point out that the manager had been dismissed and that the revised rental agreements weren't valid. Or he could remain silent and personally absorb the pain and the price of the deception. He would be the one who paid the cost of the manager's tactic. This is a shocking idea, and it puts a dark construction on the meaning of the parable. Is Jesus really saying this? Look at verse 8. And his master commended this dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. Now notice this word shrewdly. It's the last word in the sentence, putting great weight upon it. The owner isn't commending the manager for his deception, but for his shrewdness. Some reckon the manager's shrewdness was about covering up his corruption. He was doing this by removing an interest component that, contrary to Jewish law, he had included in the original contracts. Or he was taking out his own added-on fee. But rental agreements then as were as, the, they, they, as they are today. They were in writing. The contract would have included all details, such as interest and agent's fees. Furthermore, the owner would have had a copy of all the documents. It was at the owner's expense that the manager called in the debtors and told them to rewrite the rental agreements for reduced amounts. This is the shrewdness the owner commended. Now there's something else very interesting here. The usual Greek word for wisdom is Sophia, 
But that's not the word that Jesus uses. He uses another word, a word that carries the idea of cleverness in self-preservation. Jesus' parable is about a crisis moment in a corrupt manager's life. The manager faced a future without hope. In the big picture of Luke's gospel, the movement of the parable and the idea of shrewdness means it is a parable about life and death matters. It follows the three parables in the previous chapter, chapter 15, that are about lostness. A lost coin, a lost sheep, and two lost sons. Jesus wants us to understand that the the dishonest manager as a metaphor for all of us in our relationship with God. Created by God in his image, we are designed for a relationship where we love and honour him above all else. But we don't. In despite the huge advances in science and technology, we continue to make a mess of our human relationships between the nations, amongst families, including royal families. It's self-evident that we have no power of ourselves to save ourselves. We are all corrupted by self-interest, and yet at the same time, we're all accountable to the owner, God, who, who created us. So putting all this together, we see that Jesus is drawing together a complex cluster of ideas. The owner is a figure for God who is both just and merciful and who rightly calls us to account. The corrupt manager represents humankind. In the parable, the manager is called to account Knowing he's guilty and without excuse, he entrusts his future completely to the extraordinary mercy of the owner. Having experienced the owner's goodness at the beginning, he wasn't jailed. He's confident that the owner will bear the full cost of his rescue. This is the shrewdness that the property owner commends. Shrewdness about life death and the future is what Jesus wants every one of us to think about. Look at the second line of verse 8. It's the climax of the parable. The children of this age are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than are the children of light. The late Dr. Kenneth Bailey, who lived in the Middle East, Middle East for decades, comments... The parable provides an unforgettable insight into the nature of God, the predicament of humanity, and the ground of salvation. Let me say, this is a dark parable. It's dark in that Jesus teaches us lessons about God and ourselves, the present and the future, through a situation of corruption, injustice, and pain. It's dark in that it is God, the owner, who's willing to pay the price for human failure. 
It's a dark parable in that the shadow of the cross of Calvary looms over it. Let's think for a moment about this form of storytelling. Through the ages, some writers have employed dark stories to reach people, people who are indifferent to truth or who simply refuse to change their minds in the light of truth. For example, the American writer Flannery O'Connor said of her writing, the truth does not change according to our ability to stomach it. Elsewhere, she wrote, there's something in us as storytellers and as listeners to stories that demands the redemptive act, that demands that what falls at least be offered the chance to be restored. The reader of today looks for this motion, and rightly so. But what they have forgotten is the cost of it. Their sense of evil is diluted or lacking altogether. And so they have forgotten the price of restoration. When they read a novel, they want either their senses tormented or their spirits raised. They want to be transported instantly either to mock damnation or a mock innocence. Jesus uses this parable of the dishonest manager to challenge us all to be shrewd in preparing for our future on the other side of the grave and wise in trusting God with our lives. Men and women, the children of this age, Jesus is saying, made smart decisions about life, looking after and protecting their interests. They even employ people who have hacked into their business affairs to come and work for them. However, Jesus continues, the children of light, his followers, are often not clever about heavenly things. They know there's a future world, but they don't really prepare for it or truly live in the light of this knowledge. In what do you trust, Jesus is asking. Have you understood that the only hope of rescue and your future is to throw yourselves totally on the mercy of God? Yes, that mercy is undeserved, he is saying. But the day will come when you will see that God is willing to pay the price of your rescue. He's speaking, of course, of his impending crucifixion. Because John Newton, a former slave trader, understood these great themes, he penned the words, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. A corrupt manager, a merciful owner, and now a third theme, a sting in the tail. Just look at verse 9. And I tell you, said Jesus, make friends for yourselves by means of dishonest wealth, so when it is God, 
When it is gone, they may welcome you into the eternal homes. His first words here are literally, and to you, I say. It's a new subject, but it's closely linked back to the parable. Unlike the manager in the parable, the people he is now addressing have money to give away. Instead of serving their own needs, they are in a position to assist the needs of others. Yes, the idea of an existential crisis about the future is picked up, but this time it's in the context of Jesus' followers. So Jesus wants us to think about our own future and how we should order our lives now in the light of it. In particular, he wants us to think about how we can serve others by using our resources, our money and possessions, what he speaks about as dishonest wealth. Or to use our old expression, filthy lucre. For Jesus is not saying that money is of itself wrong or evil. And indeed, Paul in his first letter to Timothy, chapter 6, verse 10 says, it's the love of money that is a root of all kinds of evil. If we go back to Luke chapter 12 and verse 33, Jesus urges his followers to lay up treasure in heaven. Don't be anxious about your material needs, he says. Lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven. Here, back in chapter 16, verse 9, Jesus is saying, Win friends now so that they may welcome you into the eternal homes. That is, into the heavenlies. Just imagine a great cheer going up when you go to be with the Lord because of a whole bundle of people who have come to the, receive and respond to the good news of the gospel because of what you have been doing. That they, Jesus is speaking about, are people who have heard and responded to God's gospel because others have used their resources to make it happen. Down through the centuries, it's been the generosity of God's people that has initiated, funded gospel ministries so that the wider community, the wider world, can hear God's good news. People don't become Christian in a vacuum. They need to hear the gospel. So the big question is, Jesus is asking all his followers, how will you use your material resources? Are you like the owner, willing to use your resources to promote the gospel, to rescue others? Not just now, but throughout eternity. Do you have a truly thankful heart for what God has done for you? Do money and riches tug at your heart so much so that you don't truly honour God first? 
Just look what we read Jesus saying in verse 13. No servant can serve two masters, for either he'll hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So I ask again, do you have a truly thankful heart for what God has done for you, paying the cost of your life, of your rescue, completely, so that you may enjoy the benefits of God's forgiveness now and forevermore? And so will you give generously to St. Thomas's because it's a gospel-centered church and a gospel-centered ministries elsewhere so that others will hear God's good news so that they in turn will have the hope of a future. To return to the words from John Newton's hymn, the Lord has promised good to me, his word my hope secures. He will my shield and portion be as long as life endures. And words that are not often sung, yea, when this flesh and heart shall fail and mortal life shall cease, I shall possess within the veil a life of joy and peace. Friends, is this what you want? Not just for yourself, but also for your family and friends and the wider world. If we're truly thankful for all the Lord has done for us, we will want others to share our joy, our peace of mind and our hope.